You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. My guest today is Rosie Von Lila, uh, just a fascinating human being. Um, she serves as a board member of New America Alliance, a national advocacy organization serving diverse and women investment managers. She is a longtime attendee of Burning Man, uh, working with the founders and staff since 2013. She has guest lectured at the U.S. National Defense University. Uh, and next year, she has a book coming out. It's a working title right now about mass human flourishing. Conversations all over the place, and I love those. Enjoy the pop. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job At the desk by the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Rosie Von Lila, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's wonderful to be with you. So it was so interesting when researching your work for this conversation. And I wonder whether there is a connection between the fact that your career has consisted of a variety of jobs, for better lack of a term, that could be seen as contradictory, and that you yourself are calling for creating a more robust cultural schema that doesn't force individuals into old hierarchical hierarchical and unhealthy systems. It's kind of a chicken or egg question, I know, but is there a connection there? Paradox. It's all paradox. Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. I love that old Steve Jobs quote of you can never connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. Right. And so now that my work is focused on generating mass human flourishing and communicating the message that that is available now, I can look back at this wide variety of things that I've done, all these different people that I've had the blessing to interact with and learn from and say, ah, yes, it all makes sense now. I've grabbed a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, and it's it's woven into this deep understanding of humanity and a deep care for humanity. And uh, coming from the place of play, which is what my last name means, I I am it's what I'm here to do is connect with people, speak with people, and inspire us all to be creators in the world, such that flourishing emerges for us on an individual level and us collectively as humanity and for our planet. So that sort of bricolage idea 
is central to improvisation. I think one of the misconceptions a lot of people have about improvisation is that, well, you're just making it up, but, but we're all just making it up. But what you are doing is you are using all the things that you have, including the thing that is happening in the moment, which requires you to be, you know, you're doing that system one, system two brain back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's, it's great practice to have for you to develop an agile mind. And I think one of the reasons so many successful people come out of second city is not that we're like so great at spotting the talent, but we train talented people to use everything that they have, their bodies, their minds, their souls, their spirits with other people in communion with other people to make things. That is so well said. That is so well said. And yes, it is all made up. I was just thinking about this this morning. So the, primary thing that distinguishes human beings, homo sapiens, from the rest of the animal kingdom is our ability to create fiction, to imagine things and communicate them and then bring them into reality, whether that's through the play of improv or whether that's through the play of national politics. All of it is truly invented by humans. And that's why I say mass human flourishing is possible now. It's We never... I like to say that the future never comes. The future exists in our imagination. And what exists now, what exists is right now. Like when does, when are you ever in tomorrow? Right. You're not, it's always today. It's always today. And so today is the day to create flourishing in your life. Today is the day to fill up your cup and have your saucer be full so that you can feed others from your saucer. Yeah. The phrase we have in our field is play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. Yes. So, you know, so many <laughs> exactly. Of us, you know, playing, playing is like, no, no, no. And, and that, that ends up being very healthy uh, because we are not lingering and ruminating or dreaming uh, of, of a, a thing that may never, you know, like the grass is always green on the other side. You're, you're always thinking maybe tomorrow will be better about how about making right now the best it can possibly be. Exactly. And improv and acting, it's all about being in the present moment and listening. And so it's all related. In reading some of your writing, I really was struck by uh, how you think about work. Um, and you write, quote, it is worth noting that working at jobs that robots can do better so that one can earn money is not a path to human flourishing. Can you expand on that? Oh, sure. So as a human being, each of us has the capacity to give our gifts and to pursue our own creative interests. And we are blessed with cognitive diversity. We are blessed with all kinds of people who have all kinds of interests. And I think that it's important that every person be nurtured such that they can pursue what creatively interests them. Mm-hmm. And so a person being stuck on the treadmill of making money and doing something that a machine can do as well, if not better, I love, um, I thought that this was a quote from Buckminster Fuller, but I've been having a heck of a time trying to find it. The quote goes, the, the question is not, uh, will, will machines replace us? The question is, what will we do when we are freed from our jobs by machines. Mm. And I think about some years ago, Elon Musk spoke at the World Governments Conference in, I think it was in the UAE. And he was worried about 
what people would do when they no longer had their jobs, because so many of us are identified with our jobs and it's what gives us meaning. But I take the standpoint that we can be freed from those and then be self-determined in what is it that we're interested in doing. And curiously, having been a part of the Burning Man world for so long, when, we, when a person has the space of full freedom to do whatever they want, eventually what most people come around to is forming communities, groups, and doing something of collective interest that is creative, building an art project or building a structure, or hosting parties, whatever it may be. And, and there can be more meaningful life-supporting tasks that, that we collectively deploy ourselves to through our own initiative. Uh, for instance, after Hurricane Katrina, a bunch of people left Burning Man, a, a few camps. So these were already existing communities of people packed up all of their survival gear and all of their tools that they had used to build a good time out at Burning Man. And they trucked it down to Mississippi where they could help do um, uh, demolition work to clear people's houses so that they could get their FEMA money to rebuild their houses. Okay. So when we are freed from our jobs, we get to be self-determined. And I think that that could potentially be scary for somebody who has always been told what to do. And when you're given the full freedom of what is it that I want to do, that is the journey of self-actualization. Right. That's, that's really what we're here to do is to unfold. What is my purpose in life? What is it that I want to do? It, it, and it's always relational. Our, 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 our last podcast was with uh, um, an author of a book called The Power of Us. Um, and it's, it's all about our social identities are always linked to other people and they're not static. They, they, they change. You're a good example of this. And, and what, I was, what you made me think of is this conversation I've been having with my son, Nick, who graduated, uh, as he says, Zoom cum laude from college. Uh, so is right when everything went down. <laughs> Zoom cum laude. <laughs> Right when everything went down, he had to have like basically a couple months on Zoom and then he graduated and he wants to be an actor. He's a wonderful stage actor. And there was not a lot of that. So he got this job uh, as a tech recruiting guy. He gets people work. He happens to be very good at it and it's pretty lucrative. And he had this conversation where the bosses were kind of like, really like, you could really work well here and be in six figures soon, all that stuff. And he came out of it going, this is the most depressing conversation I'm in. And I'm like, well, it, it, I said, you have to just think like, this is where you are right now. And you actually do like getting people work. That brings you joy. Don't discount that. But you are more than this job and you can be and do whatever you want. And we're so... I mean, it's, it's a little easier for him because he had two parents who grew up in the theater doing like, how do you make a living in the theater? We did. Um, and so I think he knows that things are possible that are unusual, but still the archetypes that we've been shown are so seared into our imaginations that the work, so much of the work we have to do is the unlearning for mm -hmm. what, how we think it should be. And that's, the, that's, that's hard. Yeah. That, that lure of the next material possessions is, mm -hmm. Very seductive. Um, all right. So let's talk about Burning Man. Um, so I have never been, but I have friends uh, who, who go all the time. I'm semi-terrified. We can get into that. Uh, tell us about, so your experience was first as, as a festival goer, right? Yes. And I have to say, I can't believe that you've never been as a person who works in the arts and works with so many creative I, I know. 
and lives never, in Chicago. I've taken, I know I've never taken an edible. I mean, there I'm a, I'm a contradiction. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's a different topic, Kelly. Maybe <laughs> connected. Um, let's see. So I started going when I was in my late teens. I mm-hmm. was introduced to it while I was in college. And I fell in love with it, completely in love with it, which I think happens for most people who go. And it was, I would say, an expansion of the ethos that my mom raised me with. She always encouraged me to be myself, to create however I wanted to create. She uh, welcomed my expression, my free expression. And so at Burning Man out in Black Rock City in Nevada, you have a week of that or more if you if you start working there and building things. Um, and so, yeah, so I started attending it. I have camped with all different kinds of camps, built different kinds of art projects, been involved with art cars, like all over the map. And that led me to be inspired to start my own festival back in the mid late 2000s. And so it's been a huge part of my world. I eventually, after a dozen years of going, uh, somebody said, you should work for the new nonprofit that Burning Man's starting. And Mm -hmm. I was like, how have I never thought to work for this organization that builds this thing that my life is so focused on? And I think that's part of the elegance of the Burning Man organization is that the, the thousands of people who work for Burning Man during um, the event and who volunteer, there's way more volunteers than paid people. Um, they build a really um, beautiful infrastructure that's minimal. Mm-hmm. It supports all of these people, tens of thousands of people coming and creating their own dreams there. So it's a, it's a little thing. All right. So, so I just thought of a connection here that no, I've not been to Burning Man. I'm older than you. What I did when I was a teenager uh, for many years was I toured with the dead, Grateful Dead. Yes. And there is a, that is a scene of makers. That is like people are selling t-shirts, they're uh, selling falafels, they're helping each other out. It's, It's like, it was such a generous group of people. Um, and you know, who had to sort of like, I think from the outside were like sort of scary hippies. But, but on the inside were sort of, and I think this is how, what people think about Burning Man is probably they're a little scared of it from the outside. And then they realize you get inside and it's like so much love, so much love. Yeah. Um, I see the parallels there. Did you ever meet John Perry Barlow? He wrote a number of the dead oh, No, songs. I know. Um, no, I've met Robert Hunter, not John Perry Barlow. Okay. So um, uh, John Perry Barlow was a really big burner and he passed away oh. a number of years ago, but he believed in the emergent philosophy of Burning Man through and through that it's this free space for, for free expression and creativity. And again, most human beings, when they're given that space will orient towards really beautiful life affirming human flourishing. And and you, you said something that I think is important in terms of this minimal infrastructure that exists to do this, which is, in the future, in the future that is coming, that is the skill set that we are going to bring to the table with the robots. And I think this is the thing: is that we're, our our educational systems. I mean, they they're outmoded factories from ages ago, but they're real outmoded now. With needing people to be able to 
it's it's like putting on a show, right? Where it's like, what better training for a startup than mm-hmm. having to have to a bunch of people kind of make a play and, and sell tickets and market it. And you're, you're doing everything, you're building a, a world and that's what Burning Man does. And, and it's like, oh my God, it's a school. Yes, I, I agree. I, it has, it, I've been 19 times. Mm-hmm. I went all through my 20s, which were my formative years as an adult. It gifted me with so many tools and experiences and Burning Man is known as a, it's known, proudly known for being a world of amateurs. Yeah. Because everybody's trying something on the edge of their skills, on the edge of their experience. There's tons of breakdowns. And then most of the time, through the support of the community, they're able to, like that happens, arises spontaneously and in the moment, they're able to accomplish something glorious in their life. And that is a gift for other people. And so, uh, there is so much to be said for that. You come out of it. I was talking with one of the founders of Burn, one of the co-founders of Burning Man, and sharing that I once heard somebody describe it as a. It's turning out. It's becoming a civil service organization where it's turning out good neighbors, and training mm-hmm. people to be good neighbors. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. There's all kinds of people who go to Burning Man across fully the full political spectrum all different kinds of beliefs. You're camping across the street from somebody who may vote completely differently than you, but if they need help with a flat bike tire, you will help them because we're there as, as burners. Yeah. You, you mentioned this idea of working at the edge of your ability and, and, you know, in improvisation, we have this, this um, noted trust in the process because failure is baked in um, because it's inevitable. Um, you had a really interesting article about failure uh, when you built a, a private equity firm. Was that correct? Oh, yes. That one didn't work out. <laughs> okay. Talk, talk to us about that. Uh, let's see. So um, true, true to the creature that I am when I, so eventually I started working for Burning Man headquarters yep. and then when it was when it was time for that to transition and I transitioned to being an advisor and I've done a number of projects since working for them full time, a number of projects with them, I was inspired to start working in finance. And that came at the encouragement of someone that I knew. And they were like, really, your skill set would be amazing at, in marketing and finance. And so um, I started working on a business focused on regenerative infrastructure. And it ended up not working out just, you know, founder issues and complications and whatnot. But I worked on that for several years. And as a result, joined a few different boards in the finance industry. And it's been a remarkable experience working in the halls of power. Like some of the organizations that I'm involved with have helped move billions of dollars to mm-hmm. diverse investors. And like that's really how you start to tip the scales regarding who controls money and who invests money. So it's given me, you know, again, going back to that, looking at connecting the dots when you look backwards, I speak the language of Wall Street now and have experience with that and know what it's like inside of that world, which is pretty miraculous given where I came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You you wrote or you were interviewed in Good People Dinners, and it was so interesting. I, I have tons of quotes and, and, and some of them are long, but I think they're good to dig into. And one of them made me think of the, the person who connected us, which was Michael Slavey, 
because uh, mm-hmm. Michael's last book talks about storytelling, but in a very different kind of way. And you are, are quoting this piece as saying, quote, in my opinion, the power of philanthropy is the ability to fund institutions that center the stories of historically marginalized peoples and groups. When this happens, the result is more robust historical storytelling, which in my view can lead to greater honesty, empathy, and care for each other. Let me note that you wrote this in August of 2020, so it was not immediate, but oh, wow, that's the conversation we're having right now, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, So people who, the people who have wealth and fund philanthropy choose which institutions get funded. They choose which universities, which programs, which research, which museums get funded. And now that there's a, a growing number of women and diverse people who have accumulated wealth, they're funding things like the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Right. Which I've had the blessing of being able to go to several times. And any museum, any national museum like that, or even any smaller museum that that shows us our shared American history is very important because that connection to our past helps us expand human consciousness so that we don't repeat our collective errors of the past. And, and yet I read a tweet today that um, I think it was a Texas legislature trying to make schools not teach Martin Luther King. Amazing. Um, you know, so, so anytime that there's a, we've been in a long period of progression now right. where there's been an expansion of liberty for more and more people. And anytime that happens, the dominant, the, the predominant culture of domination that seeks to have an in-group out the top and outgroups at the bottom, and the way that they maintain that power structure is through violence and force and fear. Anytime we progress away from that, there is a pulling back by the the advocates of that, the people who are acculturated to that and may not even realize it, but they think they're just as right as anybody else. And so uh, we're in a period of this is a this is a yes and yes we're in a period of advancement we're also in a period of regression yeah uh, uh, uh later in this piece you say quote we're collectively playing at a mastery level right now which is extraordinarily difficult and rife with defeats but if we keep at it we'll triumph at this game level this thinking orients me toward my highest ideals of kindness caring and creativity and gives me a great sense of purpose in my work and endeavors it helps me keep my head up embrace resiliency and keep going. Two things can be true at the same time. Yes. And, and they, and they are often. Uh, and, and that's what you're, that's what you're getting at, which is like, Oh no, we're, we're killing it. And we're being killed by it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, and that is a, it is what it's the Fitzgerald thing of holding two opposite ideas in your brain at the same time. It's not easy, but highly necessary in the world we're in, in the world we're entering. Yeah. You don't have to look very far to see paradox, paradoxical things existing at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, simultaneously, we're collectively wealthier than we've ever been. And at the same time, we have extraordinary homelessness right. um, in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco. So you don't have to look very far to see that 
yes, uh, global poverty has reduced um, over a multitude of generations. And at the same time, uh, we're putting those people who are just barely out of poverty at risk by how by the waste that we're creating and the destruction that we're causing to our ecosystems. Yeah, climate change, income inequality. This is, and this is the argument that, because I've had on like Raj Sisodia and, and other thinkers who really talk about like, oh, we've got to be more positive because things are, are great. And I'm like, well, yeah, they, they are and they're not. I mean, you, it's, it's, it's both, both things can be true. You don't need to take a side. Yes, it, that's exactly to. it. That's exactly it. Like we are at a, a point where... This is such an amazing time to be alive. And here's why. We have more communications infrastructure and communications tools than we've ever had. Mm-hmm. And we can see in real time what's happening on the other side of the world. And for many of us, that expands our circle of empathy. Like there are many people who are very sad about what just happened in Afghanistan this week. Yes. And, and that clarity can do two things. One is it can a person can choose to shut down because the feelings are too intense, the emotions are too intense, or they can use it to say, you know, I'm, I'm making a choice of how I'm going to live my life and treat people. The expansions of communication tools and the internet and social media give us the opportunity to either be a maker and bring people together with what we put out in the world or to be an unmaker and to separate and destroy people and dominate people. And so, yes, things are amazing. And we also live in a culture that has lost, predominantly lost its relationship with the land. And I I am a, a big fan of the indigenous teaching that we belong to the land, not the other way around. It is the land that feeds us. And for the people who say, oh, well, you know, with technology, we're going to solve all of these issues with our, with our environment and our um, ecological systems, what's missing there is a relationship to the harm that each of us are cause, causing with our choices. So I don't think, I think technology is awesome and it is a, there are lots of solutions that it presents, but the fundamental solution is relational. As you said earlier, it has so much to do with relationship and how we're caring about things or caring for things. And like you said, it's all made up. Our government systems are made up. Our nation states are made up. Money so is made up. Money is made up. Debt is made up. All of that is is an invention. And so we get to craft who we want to be at this time in human history. And there's a fork in the road that we're at. And uh, we can either go the path of really nurturing our relationship to the land and creating reciprocity with the land where we care for it in the way that it gives to us, we give to it. Or we can go the path of continued death and destruction and walking on a charred earth, but Hey, it's okay. We've got technology to go to Mars. Let's go there and terraform it. It's like, what has any person think that the same culture that we're immersed in here, isn't going to be exported there. And you're not going to end up with the same situation there. So I, I, and that's not to knock space exploration. I think space exploration is amazing. And I think that it's wonderful. Um, and also, while we're 
out there amongst the stars. We simultaneously need to be cultivating our consciousness as an individual and our relationship to each other, our relationship to all of life and our relationship to this planet that gave birth to us. I was thinking about that the other night because we were, I was sitting out back. My wife has created this beautiful garden and we live in the city and we're right next to the L tracks. The, the L actually is not up high. It's on the ground. So it's not that loud, but it's there. So it's like L tracks and then our little gate and garden, beautiful garden. And I couldn't see many stars. I'm like, well, you can't because of the light. And I recalled the scientist who was talking because um, there was a few lightning bugs out and we're losing the lightning bugs because of the lights of the cities. Um, and so that, that, that is the reason. And it's something that's just sort of stuck with me um, because I, I live in this urban metropolis. It's like when I learned that blockchain is terrible for climate. I was like, really? Oh my God. So, th- so there are worlds that are going on around us that we are unaware and we need to be um, because, you know, I have a kid. I want him to, you know, be able to flourish in this planet. I want him to see lightning bugs. Yeah. You know? Um, okay. A couple, couple things before I ask you for a yes and story, you, you mentioned this at briefly at the top. Can you tell the origin story of your name? I think yes. it's fascinating. Yes. Tell us. <laughs> uh, so um one for perpetual recreation of myself. I have had uh, a few different names and I, I went by my father's name for a long time and then I was married. And then when I wasn't married, I was like, what do I want to go by now? And so one day this name Leela found me and it is, uh, it's found in a number of languages, but the one that inspired me is in Sanskrit and Hindi and it means play. And there are many different kinds of play, ranging from the play of children, and they have a a fun song in India that they sing about Leela, to the the divine play of light and dark, and which for me is the play of, of the maker and the unmaker. And so I started, I chose that name, and then eventually a friend, uh, I was in, um, I was in Europe, and we were riding around on bikes, and he started calling me Von Leela. And I was like, ooh, that's going to stick. And so that's my chosen name. I changed it legally. And yeah, so it means from the place of play. Oh, beautiful. I mean, that's what's interesting about play uh, in in my world is um, certainly improvisation is is all play. The the work that we do when we sell our services to businesses, um, they do not want to buy play. They're happy to buy improvisation. They do not want to buy play. We don't use that that word with them. And uh, at the Chicago Waldorf School, where my kids both went, um, they talk about, because they're outdoors all the time, and they talk about creating spaces of risky play. And it's Mm -hmm. so funny to me that a school with children would use the term risk. I love that they do. They come (laughs) out of a completely different tradition, the different kinds of moms and dads, obviously, who go, go there. But play is deep, man. And it's like, and I, I, I wish more people would, would, and I know there's some studies and other places and books about all this stuff, but it does not get its, its, uh, its service. And it's so vital to, to what we are experiencing here in the human condition. I agree. And I, I think that that issues from a very na- limited conception of what play is. Like yeah. for those people who, you know, are quote unquote serious and talk about risk. And my question would be, do you appreciate music? 
Right. Do you appreciate symphony? Do you appreciate the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Like the vast majority of what you experience in those cultural institutions issue from play. Shakespeare wrote play. plays. Right? Yes. Exactly, exactly. And, and so play is, is being in the state of creativity. And I think what might, um, might turn off your corporate clients is the idea that it's juvenile. And, and if you are in a state of creativity, you cannot be in a state of judgment. Mm. You, cannot be, you cannot be creative and be judging at the same time. That you, in, yeah. in innovation work, yes, you, you, you judge, you edit, but, but creativity, it's not, it's not possible if, if, one, if one, group creativity, indeed, it's not possible if one is uh, serving in judgment. The, the judgment comes immediately after the creativity. You make the thing. And then you're like, oh, God, I'm not going to show this to anybody. This is terrible. Not good. All of that. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate that. that yeah. That, I mean, that's and that's that's the unlearning we do in like level A classes at Second City. It's, it's like it is mostly not about like, here's how you're going to be funny using improvisation. It's about, hey, we're going to have it so that you allow your foolishness, your silliness, your your whatever to freely exist. Um, with other people in front of them. And guess what? It's not going to work most of the time. And that's great. And we're going <laughs> to laugh about it and then do more of it. And then, yeah. and then you know, and, and uh, this, this is perfect for going to the yes and question because the whole idea around yes and is to work from abundance. Um, and so when two people are making something out of nothing, they get nowhere by saying no. Um, and they actually don't get very far by say, saying yes. We say you say yes and to explore and heighten uh, whatever situation you're in. I, I said this to you before the call, your life is a yes and, I think, and you could probably pluck any story, but do you have one for us that you can talk about to end the podcast? I sure do. This story is a, a story that I wrote and it's called The Maker and the Unmaker, and which I've, I've referenced a few times. And it's interesting. So uh, one of my teachers is Rian Eisler, who's now 90 years old. Mm. And she says that the way that we, all of her work is about shifting from domination culture to what she coined partnership culture, mm-hmm. where all people are equal, all genders are equal. And, and she says that one of the four cornerstones of shifting from that kind of culture, from domination to partnership is, is narrative and stories. And so for a long time, I was like, oh, we got to find some people to write new stories. We got to find people to write new stories. And then lo and behold, one day, so I'm working on a book on human flourishing. And uh, one day this story came through and I said, I just wrote a mythic story. I, I, it blew me away. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like just me, I never saw myself as somebody who could do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sharing this moment right now uh, to inspire everybody who's listening, that you can be the one who does the thing that you see needs to be done. And it can happen accidentally without even trying. Uh, but all of us are here to give something. So uh, I'll share this story with you. So this is the story of the maker and the unmaker. The simula created Make and Unme to play a forever game of learning. And Make was a visual splendor. When you would look upon Make, what you would see is all the creation in the multiverse at one time. 
looking at Maka is like looking at a kaleidoscope. It's this nonstop movement of images of life in full bloom. It looked like a flower blooming. And what you would see is the beauty of spring daffodils. And you'd see the joy of tiny kittens and puppies and baby animals. And you'd see the wonder of stars shimmering in the dark night sky. You'd see fruit, like peaches, juicy and delicious and tantalizing and hanging on the branch. And everything that you would see when you looked at Maki was alive and radiant and bright and colorful. It was this nonstop flourishing of the bright hues of the living. And when you would look at Maki, what you would see is order. You'd see the order of green leaves dancing on the breeze in a maple tree in the summertime. You'd see the order of a community working together in harmony on a shared endeavor of care and love. You'd see the order of a pair of ducks with their little ducklings, and they're teaching their little ducklings how to swim in the current of a little creek. You'd see the order of a heart pumping in consistent rhythm to support life. And all of this This was the kind of order that that would generate thoughts that give birth to the experience of creativity, connection, ease, innocence, play, of course, and joy. So all of this was what you could see when you looked at Make. Now, Unmei, Unmei was difficult to see. Unmei was kaleidoscopic, just like Make, but when you would look, Unmei would seem to constantly evaporate and disappear. And Anmei would collapse inward as if it would be pulled in like a black hole in outer space. And so the images would fall apart from unceasing, constant breakdown. And it was as if Anmei was always turning into stardust and becoming invisible to the eye. And what was left was empty space where something once existed. Anmei's colors, when you could see them, were of winter and decay oblivion, the empty space of possibility. When you could see Unmei, the images were of chaos. You'd see a wildfire roaring through a drought-ridden forest, leaving charred death behind. You'd see an old horse sick from disease. You'd see tissues mutated and breaking down from cancer. You'd see a decaying body buried six feet under. You'd see a car crash of mangled machinery and lives halted. And Unmei's images could be glimpsed, and then they vanished down that black hole, and they vibrated into nothing. And from the moment that the simula set the twins in motion, Unmei and Make were always at play with each other. And Make would make something, and then Unmei would destroy it. So Make would make beautiful creations. Make made a flower and first brought up its beautiful little green shoots and its green leaves would unfurl into the sunshine and then there would be a bud and then eventually that bud, the tightly closed encasing would open up and finally a glorious rose would proudly gift its lavender petals to the world. Make would bring chubby bumblebees to visit this rose and to dance their little chubby bumblebee six step on its petal and on its pollen. Make would pour sun upon the rose and bathe its leaves in light and the world would smile. Anmei, 
then destroyed the rose and all the flowers around it. And some slowly and then some with immediate fervor. And Anmei would wither the petals and blow them off in the wind. And all that would be left was a dying stem. One day, Make asked, Anmei, why do you always break what I create? And Anmei innocently replied, what do you mean? And Make said, every time I make something, you ruin it. You pull it apart, you break it down, you make it go away. Why? Anmei says casually, it's what I'm made to do. Make asked, what do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? It's what I'm made to do. Make, you're made to create. I'm made to uncreate. Make said, oh, a moment later. Why do you think that is? Anmei thought about it. I don't know. I suppose if the multiverse were always blooming, one day it would be too full to bloom any further. And a little while later, you know, it's kind of like I'm always cleaning up after you. Make, playing defensively and smiling with laughter. What are you talking about? Well, if nothing decayed, nothing broke down, nothing died, there would be no room for anything new. You'd have no more creating, no more learning, no more inventing, none of that. Because of me, you always have renewed space to play. You always have inspiration to create something new. Playfully, Anmei added, and you always get an adventure. You never know what's going to happen. Make laughed and thought about it. A little while later, looking down at the ground, but it's sad when things end. Anmei said, every ending is a beginning, Make. It is you who makes it so. Mm. It's almost like we planned the conversation from the beginning. <laughs> I love when that happens. Rosie Van Lila, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Kelly. Truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Once survived.